welcome back to War Starts Midnight, a podcast dedicated to taking deep dives into director's filmographies and paying penance for our cinematic sins. I'm Chris Gallagher, and joining me today are co-hosts Jacob Graves. Hello. And Peterson Hill. Hello. Guys, what are we bantering about today? Well, we're kicking off the Magnificent Anderson series with the discussion of Paul Thomas Anderson's directorial debut, Hard Eight. Or is it Sydney? Plus, we've got the perfect plan of beer to pair with PTA's freshman effort. And of course, we've got another round of really rad recommendations, too. But first... Hey guys. Hey. What's up? I'm uh, very excited to kick off this uh, inaugural episode of the Magnificent Andersons, our follow-up to The Carpenter Shop and a very a very different turn for our uh, sort of film-by-film director series, but uh, I think it's going to be a whole lot of fun. I think you are missing the true follow-up to Armageddon. The true follow-up to Armageddon, correct. I mean, really, my my entire goal here is to maybe perhaps learn a little bit more about PTA than than I know, because, I mean, Wes is definitely my guy in, in this coming in. Uh, but then also, more importantly, to bring Jake around to uh, not just appreciate, but also love Paul Thomas Anderson and his work. You have a lot of work to do. My goal here is to survive these PTA movies to get back to the great and <laughs> magnificent, the, the guy who brought the magnificent to the title, Wes Anderson. You Boy, know my hey. opinions on PTA. I uh, do, and I think they're so wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying you have to move mountains to get me to like PTA, but... Uh, there's some really big hills that have to be moved to get me to that side. Just to reiterate the things that I've said, I think every time we've ever talked about a a Paul Thomas Anderson movie on this podcast, I think he has a, a really, um, what do I, I I normally say a a really negative worldview. Yeah. Which I I just think what it's a really pessimistic worldview. And I think part of it is that I always leave his movies never feeling like refreshed and energized about humanity or anything like that. It's just typically much darker than films I typically fall in love with. How about that? I hope this is a recurring theme that we come back to, because I think that's sort of the essence of Paul Thomas Anderson's work in a lot of ways is he's looking at these things that a lot of times are uh, considered dark or dismal or uh, corrupt or what have you, and he's finding the light within them. Um, and that's, that's what I think. That's where I think we fundamentally don't see eye to eye, uh, on his work because while there is a lot of roughness within the palette that he's working with, he's still finding the light, uh, in, in these sort of darker times or these darker places. He's also bringing, um, he never loses his sense of humor either, which I think is really helpful. He has a sense of humor? Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I think all of his films, and I, we're certainly going to get to this within a few minutes of talking about this movie, is all of his movies have that thread of searching for a family. Everything from Heart Eight to Boogie Nights to Magnolia yep. to um, Punch Rock Love, all of them do. I mean, even uh, his most recent, uh, which is... 
Phantom Thread. The one you could maybe argue doesn't is Inherent Vice, but even there, I think uh, the Joaquin Phoenix character he's searching he's searching for a family too well there's also there's also those characters kind of on the outskirts of that the owen wilson character the, yeah i think that's a a big thread of where his hope comes in and hope coming in through human connection that's what he's really interested in exploring what being in a family unit can do whether it's a true family unit or for him they're all pretty much made up in uh facsimiles of actual families yeah, man, I I'm gonna have to look harder to 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 find the the any any sort of sense of humor or anything in those. Just just saying that I'm racking my brain. So to go over the movie that I have, shackle seen from, like a do, baby. From 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 Paul Thomas Anderson, I've seen Phantom Thread. Uh, I've seen uh, There Will Be Blood. Uh, I have seen Punch Drunk Love. There Will Be Blood, probably his most humorless film. That's the one I laugh at the most. You can't say There's that. There's moments that I, I find so funny in There Will Be Blood. When somebody says, oh, yeah, I don't think it's funny. I, I just don't understand it. It's the same way something like No Country for All Men is funny to me. Um, yeah. When he tosses yeah. the napkin on his face and he's talking about, oh, Mr. Tilford and all this. I mean, that scene yeah, is hilarious. Yeah. Um, when he randomly tells... Uh, is it H.L. Tilford? I'm going to come into your house and cut your throat. <laughs> it's the kind of insane dialogue that only someone like PTA can write. Like that's, that's where I think PTA is such a brilliant, uh, screenwriter. He punctuates moments with humor in a way that nobody else can. Jake, I know three I- types of karate, jujitsu, <laughs> Aikido, and regular karate. <laughs> Okay, I hear you, and and, and I, I have seen Boogie Nights. I have seen Boogie Nights. I forgot about that, but but that's that the there will be blood. All of that that's skipping ahead a bit. Obviously, we're starting out with Heart Eight. I'm just wondering, uh, have you guys seen all of the Paul Thomas Anderson? Have, are you completionists yes. at this point? Yes, I've seen them all a couple of times. Okay, okay. So so a lot of these are going to be first viewings for me, which should be interesting because generally he is a for me at least. He's a second, third viewing kind of kind of guy for me to like totally sink in. Phantom Thread, probably the exception to that rule for me. Phantom Thread, for whatever reason, I clicked with immediately. And I, I, the only one I've rewatched is There Will Be Blood, and that is my favorite of his. So I, I can completely I, I can completely see where that's coming from. For this podcast, I'll probably only watch them once, but that's just because usually on a movie that needs a rewatch, it takes me a couple weeks to a month to like yeah, no, process it enough to rewatch it. That's exact, and that's what he has, his movies are heavy, so it's nice to like come back to them, you know, a year or two later and and kind of unpack more. I mean, the master's probably the one that you'll never get figure everything out with. Um, did you say you haven't seen Punch Drunk Love, or you have? I have seen Punch Trunk Love. That may be the only PTA that I've only seen once. Really? It's not because I dislike it. It's just, I just, for some reason, I've only probably seen it once. Um, I love it. And I've seen probably the first half three or four times and the second half three or four times. But I've never like sat down and watched it all the way through as much as the others. And that's, I think it's just because, you know, I would sit down. It's on HBO. It's, it's I, only 90 minutes. It's got yeah. an incredible Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, beautiful photography, amazing score. I'm I'm really looking forward to getting to that one. But uh, first, I think we should just 
dive head on into heart eight, find out what Jake doesn't like and convince him he's wrong. The main thing I don't like is watching it on this small, tiny TV because I had to do the cable from the wall directly to this TV. <laughs> I had to put a key in the back of the cable box so that they don't know that I'm getting heart eight on this TV. Come from Vegas, Reno. Vegas? You lost some money? No. You won some money. I broke even. What were you playing? Blackjack. You know how to count cards? What? You said you were playing blackjack. Do you know how to count cards? No. In my experience, if you don't know how to count cards, you ought to stay away from blackjack. Well, thanks for the tip, Mr. Helpful. Hey, John. What? Hey, John, we're sitting here. I bought you a cup of coffee. I've given you a cigarette. Hey, John, look at me. You want to be a wise ass? Go outside and take a seat. If you want to talk to me, if you want to talk to me, well then, uh, never ignore a man's courtesy. Let's talk about Vegas. Let's talk about what happened to you. Because something did happen. Maybe I can help. You want to help me? You look like a man that could use a friend. You want to be my friend? Then give me $6,000. Do you have that? Can you give a total stranger $6,000? Because that's my trouble, okay? What do you need $6,000 for? I need it. For what? To bury my mother. All right, guys. Heart eight. Uh, just to kind of get the... A very sprawling sort of plot out of the way. Here's here's the synopsis from Letterboxd. It says, A stranger mentors a young Reno gambler who weds a hooker and befriends a bolt <laughs> and befriends a vulgar casino regular. Which is and is not what this movie is about. That that almost sounds like a sitcom or something. That was written by Reich Entertainment after they pulled the movie out of his hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Um that's I mean, that's a plot, but that's not what the story of this movie is by any means. So let's let's start with sort of gut reactions of of uh how everybody feels about this. Uh, Peterson, you're our kind of resident PTA uh aficionado what do you think of heart eight as a first film for pta is he is he coming out swinging or is he sort of building up for me i think i immediately am drawn to this film um it's one of those movies that for especially for a debut is so assured there is his uh constantly moving camera his playful cinematography you can see his prowess is a screenwriter and his ability to bring comedy out of these insanely disparate situations. You can see his love of characters, especially in this film, obviously creatures in the night and people who uh, really you don't see much on screen. And I think for me, this is one of those great debuts. It came what five years after the debut of, or four years after the debut of uh, someone like Quentin Tarantino. It came yeah. right before 
the debut of Wes Anderson. So you had these three incredibly talented filmmakers debuting in the 90s. And I can't imagine watching those three movies and thinking, well, you know what? We're in for a bad 20 years. And even just those three guys uh, should excite you for the years to come. So for me, I I love this movie. Uh, you know, is it my favorite PTA? Absolutely not. Uh, I, it is slight. It is small. It's uh, very brief. It's uh, short. It uh, does not overstay its welcome. There is a two and a half hour cut of this film supposedly out there. PTA is supposedly working on uh, Blu-ray. I'd love to see a director's cut just for curiosity's sake. This is technically the director's cut that we got. Like the basically the compromise was he was very hard with um, saying, no, I want this. I want this. I want this. And then the one thing that he compromised on was the uh, was the title, because if he didn't compromise on the title, they said they were going to present their cut anyway. What happened with the title? Well, it was originally Sydney, yeah. Um, and they, yeah, Reicher Entertainment uh, took it out of his hands and called it uh, Hard Eight, which really, does, I think the the big flaw for the way they sold this movie is they sell it as this gambling thriller because Hard Eight is obviously playing up the gambling, and obviously gambling is a part of this movie, but it is not at all the central and driving aspect of it. The characters are what drives this. And that's what I think from the beginning you see as Paul Thomas Anderson is able to craft characters, I think, unlike anyone else. I think I'm a little cooler on this this movie than you are, Peterson. Like I think I think it's a stunning debut. I think it definitely has those sort of I know he didn't go to film school, but it has those sort of student filmy qualities where a little bit in in the structure and the writing. And ultimately, I like that. I like to see sort of the germination of things that we see really fully develop later on in his career. Um, and I, th- I think the structure of this is uh, pretty interesting and pretty novel, particularly for a first time screenwriter and director, you know, coming out of the gate. I think something like uh, Cigarettes and Coffee, which is sort of the short film that kicked this off is very much more pedestrian and very much more like figuring out how things work. Whereas this feels like it does. And and I think it is, but it feels like the type of thing where he sits down to write a script, doesn't know exactly where it's going and then kind of finds his way as he goes. And ultimately like it works really well. Um, And I think it works really well because he knew from the start that he had some pretty solid characters while I understand why he wanted to call it Sydney, I think for the film itself, particularly for someone coming into it, not knowing anything about it, I think Heart Aid is a better title than Sydney because letting on that this movie is really about the old guy from the very beginning um, would lead you to like really dive into him more than I think you really should from the beginning. You know, he's sort of, he's this, uh, very benevolent sort of wise man who just comes out of nowhere, um, to, to help out, uh, John C. Riley's character. And there's, I mean, the first half of this movie, you're really trying to figure out, you know, he's so calm and cool and collected and almost seems like an angel of some sort who's come to either help or hurt. We're not really sure. We we never really see 
see all of his cards to to play upon. Um, so I personally, I kind of I kind of like going with a title that's a little more uh, obscure. I I understand, well, that. and I don't hate the title, and I do think there is some thematic weight to what that title means. You know, I you know uh, did some gambling in my in my younger days, and for me. That obviously that title like craps is something I barely understand, but I know a hard eight is one of those impossible things to hit. Uh, it's one of the harder things to hit. So, um, there's a lot of thematic weight to what that means, uh, for the film. So it's not like I completely dislike the title. Um, but the movie is so much about Sydney. And I think Philip Baker Hall is just so good as, uh, the central character. Well, and it was written for him. Like from from the start, he knew he wanted him to be in the role. And I think had he not gotten Philip Baker Hall on board from the beginning, this movie probably doesn't exist. Well, didn't but, he like see him on set when he was working? On yeah, TV he was shows work, and he, he was, was like, working on like a PBS. Like, I'm going to make you a star. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I think he was in. Like he was like twenty two years old or something, and I'm yeah, sure he, he was just like, a PA. oh yeah, I know what you're talking about, kid. <laughs> yeah. What sure. about? But Jake, don't don't leave us in suspense any longer. What what is your sort of your primary take from uh, your experience of seeing Heart Eight? I assume for the first time and only time. Yes, for the first and only time, it was good. It was good. That's about where I'm at on it. So look, it. I agree. It takes a while to process these movies, and that's what I thought when I. I watched it. And I've been thinking about it more and more, obviously, but I, I definitely agree with what you said, Chris. I, I thought it felt a lot like uh, a student film plays in a lot of those same territories that student film does, like the hardened gangster uh, sort of. I mean, if you want to call him that or, or mob connected, I'm, I'm not sure what he did in Atlantic City besides, you know, spoilers. But um, but obviously he's like that older hardened criminal with the young guy who he takes under his wing. I liked, um, uh, and I definitely agree with you that that Heart Eight seems better than Sydney because I spent thirty minutes of this movie thinking we were following John C. Riley around. Suddenly, I was like, "Oh no, this ain't the John C. Riley movie." Yep, this is the Sydney movie. Well, I don't think it's not the John C. Riley movie. I just think, and I wonder what that additional fifty minutes of footage potentially had. But um, I, I think it's, I think it's incredibly interesting to dissect that relationship. Um, and I think there's a pivotal moment where I think you're questioning how much he actually genuinely cares because he lets so little in. And PTA purposefully doesn't give you a lot of emotion in the dialogue except for that one uh, final phone call from them. But I think the moment that gets me is Clementine hands him the wedding tape. And initially I was like – Oh, you know what? I don't think he's not going to watch it. Like he didn't care. Like he doesn't want to watch two young kids get married. And then you see him a little bit later and he's got a bottle of scotch and he's watching it. And you can tell it actually means something to him. And he's actually genuine, has genuine emotion for these two people. Um, and that's what I think PTA really distinguishes him as not being a pessimist. Yeah. I think he finds these characters and lets them find kind of love and peace and uh, some kind of connection, even, even in a world that is as shitty as the world that this exists in. I mean, obviously, you know, I cannot imagine living in a hotel in Reno and having to 
you know, cash in your money just to have a hotel room. And they, that just sounds absolutely horrible. Um, but they create a life together and they create a, some kind of familial structure that maybe I don't want, but it works for somebody. Well, let's let's circle back around on that because I, I, I'm still not bought that this was like a positive um, world view at the end or, or even imply. We'll circle back to that. This guy didn't go to film school. Like, I literally know nothing about P.T. Anderson. I've seen the movies in that. Scene. He went to like a week and then dropped out and basically made his film school PAing around Hollywood. I mean, he so he grew up in the valley. His dad was actually like sort of a, a pretty infamous uh, voiceover guy and radio guy. He in the 70s was the guy who was like, I dream a genie coming up next. And um on I don't know if it was CBS or ABC one of one of the major networks um, he did all the promos he also did a bunch of radio stuff um, and so he just he grew up in California and so he ended up just saying okay well I'm just gonna go find my way on sets and then through pure just uh, ambition and drive uh, and you know and also, I think a whole lot of uh, self-education and, you know, just seeking out stuff and learning about uh, different films and stuff. I mean, because like Philip Baker Hall, he he was so determined to make Philip Baker Hall a star because he had seen Secret Honor, the Robert Altman film, which oh. is about Nixon, about about Nixon, which is basically a a chamber drama filmed, um, which is a movie that even today is a little like most people haven't haven't heard of, or if they have heard of still haven't seen it. Uh, and he's very, very good in it, but it's, you know, it's the type of thing that I don't know how in the late eighties, early nineties, he's even getting his hands on this sort of stuff. So I, you know, he's very motivated and that's how he ends up making this film and so 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 he landed at some studio and they they sent what like 250 grand for him to make this movie or something he so three three millions of reported budget here so yeah he made so he made a short film with philip baker hall called cigarettes and coffee which is sort of i mean there are similarities to uh the opening of this movie but like completely different stories. And this, this story is much more nuanced and much less predictable and much better than cigarettes and coffee. But Phil Baker Hall's in it. He's one of like five main characters. And, um, then I, I think did that play Sundance or did the script for this, he ended up at the Sundance Institute with the script. I know. And actually working on with, he had John C. Riley and Phil Baker Hall at that point. For, so John and Sydney are characters that were more or less made for these actors. And so they sort of worked through um, the script and, and had a lot of did a lot of legwork at Sundance Academy or workshop or whatever it's called, which now that I think about it, probably around the same time Wes Anderson is is developing Bottle Rocket. Um, it's well. probably the exact same time. Yeah, because uh, yeah. these, these premiered the same Sundance. Uh, this premieres. A, sorry, they premiere a year apart, and this comes out well after, right? Bottle Rocket doesn't get accepted to Sundance, is what happens. Oh yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, it, this this plays the same year at Sundance, 
but it plays theatrically the following year. Yeah. Basically yeah. when Boogie Night right before Boogie Nights is coming out, which they yeah, knew was but gonna- it but it kind of gets dumped. Like it's a so he really like he was already working on uh the script for Boogie Nights and had sold it to New Line whenever he was in post production on this. So this movie also has a weird life in that it it played at Cannes. It actually played at Cannes as Sydney. Um it uh you know it it did some kind of great things for a debut feature but then went nowhere as far as distribution it just got dumped in the gutter like uh i don't think it even played in europe at all theatrically hmm. basically it's the uh modern day equivalent of uh premiering at Cannes and then going straight to netflix yeah basically like the the distributor didn't know what to do with it and he was also a little hard to work with from what i understand like he was and and in the like orson welles sort of way of like he knew what movie he wanted to make and he was very confident in it and they were like well you're a first time director so you don't know anything and he didn't budge on on much that's why like it's more or less his director's cut that you see but he lost the battle of of the title and that's i mean that in in and of itself is pretty impressive if you consider particularly like i mean indie filmmaking at the time was nowhere close to what it is now as far as gathering clout i mean this is like you were saying peterson just a few years after tarantino who sort of like i mean i i was thinking of like him and soderbergh is busting off the doors of really american indie and uh making it something that seems like someone could make money back on it. These guys shaped the nineties. And then in the, you know, the early two thousands, you could have something like shotgun stories be made for what, like $250,000 and launch someone like Jeff Nichols. And yeah, that's a, that's a technological thing as well. I think, or yeah, you know, the stories, ease of, but yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a whole different ball game now, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's impressive in its own right. It's and but I think there's there's a reason why like this is not a movie that is known by everyone in the way like I remember when Boogie Nights came out, I was in fifth grade and I didn't even know what it was or what it was about other than it was about naughty things. And like I had a friend who was like, oh, my parents took me to see Boogie Nights. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, like I was aware of it and for no, like for no reason at all, other than like, it was a major studio film that had a lot of backing. Um, this was the opposite of that. No, I, and look, it, it, it sounds better than the reception it got. Like, I, I don't know if it, if it got a, a strong critical, um, you know, was it a critical darling, something like that? It just wasn't. It did pretty well critically. And the thing is that I think everyone watched and they thought, you know what, this is a good debut, but. What's this guy going to do next? Yeah. yeah. That's, I think that's the big thing for me as I watch this and I think, you know what? Am I going to go back to this all the time? No, but I do think it's a pretty enjoyable film and it makes yeah. me so excited to see what he does next. The music cues, the, uh, the, the camera movements, his ability to work with actors. I mean, he just, this displays a lot of that immediately. So I, I don't know. I'm glad you brought up music because that was something I thought about, especially um, after the motel room scene when the music really kicks in. 
uh, I was like, this seems like what I think of when I think of Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, just kind of that like heavier score, powering it a little bit more than some of the quieter scenes we had going into that. And I just imagined him as a young director, like trying to explain to whatever composer he was working with, like, I, this is what I want. And like, finally, he has achieved, you know, later in his career, something that does, you know, actually accomplish what he wants. But I just saw like really hints of what he was going for with music, working with film in this. I thought that was really interesting. I mean, a, a big piece of that is the fact that they barely got music in before it even like went to oh really like it was a yeah like it was everything was tempted in and then they like just like they got accepted to can and then that gave him the green light to get michael penn and john bryan who he works with magnificently uh later and i i mean i think john bryan's score to punch drunk love is one of the reasons why i go back to that movie again and again and again it's what's well, this this is the same exact score in in boogie nights there's the there's moments of boogie nights that have that same like one beat um the I'm yeah not doing that yeah. justice but that is the exact same score they use in moments of boogie nights um I think in the scene where Dirk's like about to give a blowjob or in a car, you know, something like that when he's basically in his spiral downwards. Um, and I think, I think to me, it's just so exciting to see someone so young, so talented. And I mean, he is not in complete control of his craft, but he has a vision and he knows what it is. And to Jake's point, I think it's like, I, I think it's exactly that Peterson. I think it's that, he he doesn't have like he knows exactly what he wants, but he doesn't have all the amenities at his fingertips to necessarily make it all uh, come together. And so, like, the reason I think the score feels a little like it's not all together there is because it was kind of a rush job. You know, the um, I, I will say, I think the photography with Robert Elswit is like. <laughs> home run from from the very very beginning like i mean just not and this dude was what he was shooting um what's the uh brad pitt uh legends of the fall the year before this i think like is he um, was that he then he i thought that won the academy for best cinematography oh sorry the river wild god that movie's good i like the curtis hansen i i stand a legend in curtis hansen oh of course uh but i mean he was he was sort of a bsd you know coming on this on the set people were a little i think uh afraid of okay well what's what's this guy gonna do is is he gonna is he gonna be boston and he turned out to be an incredible collaborator with with Anderson up until very recently yeah until the master it it didn't look like a student film i just thought parts of it were clunky in the way not clunky, but play in the same territory with a lot of student films, and 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 with that that score only being in certain parts, uh, that that led to that student film a bit, uh, just with some rough edges showing, but so much promise. Like I, I definitely could feel that throughout the film. I a hundred percent see. This is this is a a young filmmaker. There's you know that opening scene, uh, which I do think is a very good opening scene, especially for a uh, debut filmmaker. But it does ring like a, a screenwriting assignment or a screenwriting. It's an exercise. It's an exercise. Yeah, it's yeah. totally. Put an exercise. two people in a room, 
figure out what their motivations are. Like it, it hits all those beats. And I think, you know, I see that scene. It's, it's very good and it, and it has rhythm, but I think later in the film, you know, that, that casino scene where he's showing John how to do everything is so good. That scene where you first meet Jimmy, um, and the way PT Anderson's, uh, camera is moving from behind shoulder shots on, uh, Samuel, Samuel Jackson and basically cutting Samuel Jackson out of the frame mm-hmm. just to show Sydney completely ignoring him and playing Kino the whole time. Um, that moment where this, the tracking shot as they're leaving the hotel or the motel after the very long extended scene inside of it. Uh, mm-hmm. and it comes all the way down the stairs and then Gwyneth Paltrow and Phil Baker Hall get in their car, and then you see John C. Riley gets to his, and you see that, and you're like, "Oh, he's about to do such better things in Boogie Nights," but it's all there. It's all there. He knows when to move the camera, and he knows when to just sit tight with with just a master, and and just let the characters play out in their sort of interact. I mean, especially you got Philip Baker Hall on screen. There's not a whole lot more that you need a lot of times. And so that confidence from that early on is really, really impressive. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like we need to shift. I mean, because I don't think, I don't think anyone's going to argue with his, uh, his preternatural ability to just like understand how to create Cinema. I, I the thing that I'm more interested in talking about here is Jake, your sort of apprehension with the humanity that may or may not be on display in this movie. So I I get that there was there's love in the movie. There's clearly Sydney loves John, not you know in a fatherly way. That's there, and he he goes to great lengths. I don't know what our what is our spoiler here. We uh we oh I I mean we're yeah we're not even running the song. It's spoilers ahead, guys. Okay, so it's 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 been out twenty years, twenty three years or something. I'm the only one who hadn't seen it up until this point, apparently. So uh no I yeah he he had a great affection for John. Clearly, he felt regret. Uh, for having killed his dad, shot him in the face, but it's like in the face. And, and so it has that, that connection between humans and I get that, but it's in such a dirty, gritty world, even though this is stylized in a, in a, in a way, but it's just like, why are they connected? Oh, he shot his dad in the face and he'll shoot another guy to protect him. I mean, and I, I get that, but at the same time, aren't, aren't these people, just as worthy of a story like they're i mean these people walk the earth as much as anyone else i mean they're like like john is such an identifiable character and i think off the bat he's such a lost little puppy dog but also at the same time i look at him and i think oh you're i know you like i know a john like somebody that you give him an inch he's gonna take a mile and then, you know, he doesn't become addicted to gambling, but he certainly becomes habitual in it. And with that, I think um, he starts to test the waters of, well, if I can risk here, maybe I can risk somewhere else. And if I can risk my money, then I can risk my my life and all those aspects of my morality. For me, the big thing is, like, if 
you, I mean, of all places that you need to be able to find the, the humanity and the like silver lining, it's in the darkest places. And that's what I think PTA does time and time and time again. Like you don't expect to see a film about pornographers and to feel like, oh, they, they're these lost broken souls, but they somehow create a family around each other and, and find each other and need each other and ultimately get through their, uh, broken lives together. Same thing. I mean, with Sydney is not a hero by textbook standards, but he is, I mean, if you really look at it, Anderson is taking a sort of noir trope or many noir tropes and injecting into them something you don't normally get, which is this actual true, like real bonding relationship between John and Sydney, which, uh, I mean, you call it father, son, you call it whatever you want. But, um, I think in most other films that would play out in a way that Sydney ultimately backstabs John, or there's some sort of double cross or something mm-hmm. like that. And, and really Sydney is, he's dealing with his own demons and he is, you know, while he seems to, he understands the whole, like, this is how you live in Reno on gambling thing. He has, he has certain aspects of his life put together. He's as lost as John when it comes to, Oh God, I killed this, this poor kid's dad. His mother just died. He's a lost puppy. What do I do? Like he's, he's trying to pay penance for something that he feels terrible. I mean, the fact that he has that, that in him shows that it's not as bleak and dark as the surroundings. I think the moment that keys me into that each time I watch it and I think it's kind of building up to it, but it's the moment where uh, Sydney brings home Clementine and essentially everyone falls asleep. They wake up the next morning and John uh, comes in to Sydney's bathroom as he's getting ready and Sydney's tying his tie. Yeah. And you see Sydney, or, uh, sorry, you see John and he's sitting there in his shirt and it's a little bit ruffled and you can see he's got a, a shirt underneath it, but it is covered in some kind of logo or this massive sign on it in the middle. And he can understand potentially the way Sydney looks and try to emulate it. But he cannot reciprocate it. He does not understand what it means to do that. And that's where I think you see this young man searching to try to be like him. And Sydney will teach him certain things, but he's not going to bring him the whole way. Um, just like when he, when John tries to, you know, he orders a drink and he says, no, no, you don't order drinks. That's expensive. Uh, you're about to lose all your money. It, it's going to be a what, $150 mistake? $150 mistake. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. That moment there where you see John and his nice button down, it's not pressed. It has a massive logo on the uh, bottom of it. You're like, oh, he understands what nice clothes theoretically are, but he doesn't understand how you wear them. He doesn't understand what to actually present yourself like. And that's what Sydney's very good at, but he doesn't understand it all, how to build a family um, 
out of any kind of natural way. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm not I'm not arguing that it's not a good movie or not a deep movie or that that PT Anderson doesn't deeply understand characters because he does. But I think he chooses to point his camera or or point his films at really like sad stories. I don't know if that's the right way to put it. That's why I think it's it's just so negative. It's uh at the end Sydney's just not going to be with John. He he uh is abandoning John in a way, but he did it to protect him and it's this complicated, interesting, you know, uh, layer of emotions and that's really interesting, but it's not the type of movie I'm typically drawn to. It's not something I'm connecting with in the way that I do some other things. Not that I just have to have this happy sunshine rainbow ending or anything like that, but I think time and time again, uh, P.T. Anderson does seek out really interesting, but kind of dark, sad places in the world is what I feel like. Hey, Jake. Yeah. Couple couple questions for you. Uh-huh. Uh, how do you feel about Taxi Driver? Oh, I like Taxi Driver. How do you feel about <laughs> Raging Bull? I like Raging Bull. How do you feel about Martin Scorsese as a... As a person presenting a, a worldview, look, I, I I love I love Martin Scorsese. I I get it, but he takes a break every now and then and makes makes a a different movie. I mean, he there he, there is a lot of variety. In yeah, he made he made Hugo. You're right, he did make Hugo. <laughs> yeah, which and, rules my, my, and after hours. Uh, but, but but my my point here is that maybe I haven't seen everything. Maybe there's more that I need to see in his filmography to to, to flesh out uh, in P.T. Anderson's uh, filmography. But so far, the things I've seen just seem so so dark and and generally humorless. And there are there are a couple of funny parts in this movie. I get this, but I think the Coen brothers play in the same space, but in a way that I don't feel just dismal watching the movie i think they're more nihilistic i i, I absolutely think they are the but the god in the cohen's movie has a sense of humor about it like there's this irony and and humor and you don't you don't find the big daddy book of matches uh funny that's funny the entire <laughs> philip seymour hoffman scene is so funny and i i think you know I know, Jake, you didn't know he was coming on, on screen. I didn't, but... but it, the moment he shows up, like, especially 23 years later, like, you know what this guy's about to do, and you're like, oh, he's just chewing into this scene. <laughs> oh, no, like, he stole the show. All right, shaka laka do, shaka laka dooby dooby doo, shaka laka doo. You got a little bit more there. He's coming in there, baby. Shaka laka doo, baby. I'm almost lighting it, baby. I'm going to light the cigarette, old-timer. What are you going to do? $2,000 hard eight. $2,000 hard eight's a bet. The fuck? <laughs> oh, man. You play that game, don't you? Oh, shit. <laughs> You're big time. You are big time. <laughs> oh, card eight. Oh, okay, here we go. All right, here we go. All right. This is for you, big time. All right, I'm not even looking. Here we go. Eight. Six. Hard six. Hard six. That's a hard six, old timer. That's not bad for me. That's not bad for me. This is sister. This is sister Sledge. <laughs> there we go. It's me and you. You know what I'm saying? For fucking hundred. Party! Hundred. Me and you, big time. 
Me and you. You can buy yourself another suit with this roll. 44. Fucking 44, big time. 2,000. 2,000, 100, 100, 2,000, 2,000, 100, 100, 2,000, 44. Eight easy, easy eight. Five and a three. It's a front line winner. Bam. Fuck. And when he loses, and Sydney has that one moment where he shows that emotion where he's like, oh, mm-hmm. shouldn't have done that. He shows yeah. his cards because um, he is. Even though he's so composed, he can't control his emotions. And I think that's what Philip Baker Hall does so well is that he simmers everything below except for the couple of times he resurfaces. Like when they're leaving the motel room, what's he do? Right before they're all about to walk out, he goes back and he punches the guy on the couch. He hadn't done anything and he punches the guy right before they walk out. There's probably a practical reason he wants to make sure he stays asleep, which – That probably helps, but it is a sense of violence within him that he lets surface every once in a while. I think PTA is so good at understanding what that character is and the character motivations and what drives all of his characters. Look, he's excellent with characters. I'm I'm not arguing that. I just feel like the God in the Coen Brothers movie has has a sense of irony and justice and completion and and everything sort of works together to make a, a certain point that I I have not learned the the language that, that P.T. Anderson is talking in to understand how, how the God in that universe works other than being completely uncaring and some people are punished and some people are not punished and everybody's kind of sad at the end. And some people are fulfilled, but it, it doesn't feel... Uh, and look, maybe that's a more realistic take. Maybe that, and maybe that's why it clicks with some people. But it doesn't have that same. To me, the Coens, there is no God. The world is a uh, nihilistic and empty and evil place, and it's going to get you whether or not you're a good person or not. I think that's the whole Coens thing, and that's why I think a Serious Man is one of their yes three to five exactly best because that's yeah, the, well, that's I, the whole movie is is that God doesn't exist, and as much as um uh the Michael Stuhlbarg character tries to make sense out of a god and reason with his uh, place in the universe. At the end of the day, he's going to get cancer and a tornado is going to come and uh, destroy everything. So what's what's it, what's it matter anyway? And Columbia Record Club is going to send Santana Braxis to him. <laughs> I, I hear what you're saying, but that's not no god. That's Loki. That's just like 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 dicking with people. It's just making making these uh you shouldn't make a plan the worst thing's going to happen i don't know i i think their i think their viewpoint errs very much more in the like chaotic humor i don't i don't know where like it's this like tangent if if we were to make the D map like they'd yeah. be just adjacent to uh Werner herzog <laughs> in being funnier not to say that herzog is not funny because he is, but um, they like they're a little bit drier and generally funnier. Um, but to bring it to bring it back into PTA, um, I wanted to to discuss just a little bit about like, do you guys see any uh, any of his influences on display here? Because I feel like uh, in general with his films, one of the things that strikes me is how sort of complete they feel, even when I feel like you notice like, like in Boogie Nights, it's like, Oh, well this is clearly raging bull in that, that mirror scene. 
but the way that he borrows is pretty like feels whole cloth. Whereas like this movie, and maybe it's because it's a, a first time, you know, attempting stuff. I felt like you could sort of identify more throughout, at least for me. Like, I mean, I know Bob LaFlambeau is, was a huge influence on this and you can really see that just in Sydney in general, um, there's obviously Altman influence and in just the fact that he's cast Philip Baker Hall. Um, Jonathan Demme, I think, was also a big influence on on him here, which goes back to the humanity thing. The way PTA weaves his influences in is the same way uh, to me. And obviously, P- uh, Quentin Tarantino is much more overt about it. But to me, just because someone like Quentin Tarantino references uh, some obscure samurai film and you can get the reference, even if you don't know what the reference is um, just because he does it doesn't mean he's not putting his own spin on it. Like he's, he's starting, he has a starting place just like I think uh, PTA does. I think PTA has a starting point and he draws influences from people like Altman and Scorsese. Um, I get a lot of mean streets uh, in the first really th- like 30 minutes of uh, heart eight, I get a lot of mean streets. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, the, you know, that's to me, that's the big one for the first 30 minutes um, where we are following the John C. Riley character. Cause it is this insane, insane 30 minutes where you're like, I don't know where we're going. I don't know what this movie is really about. And I think that's the world that PTA loves to exist in. And that's, a, that's where the Altman comes in too, because He's got that shaggy, like, I'm not sure exactly where this is going. It's interesting, but I don't know exactly who these characters are, where we're headed, and what we're in for. I, I was most impressed, maybe, I, I don't know if lack of influence is the right word there, but this came after Pulp Fiction. It came after Reservoir Dogs. We talked about Tarantino a bit already. It could have easily been derivative or a knockoff or trying to tap into those same things, and and it, it was not. It had Samuel L. Jackson in it, and he wasn't playing the same yeah. role. He wasn't trying to do the same thing. He really easily could have been like, I'm going to do that Tarantino thing. And the studio said, you should do that Tarantino thing. And it is not that it is a distinct voice. That is not Tarantino. There's a hundred percent, a version of this movie by a lesser uh, filmmaker. That is just a complete, uh, a little bit of a Tarantino ripoff, a John Woo ripoff, maybe where it's mm-hmm. like, it's an, you know, the, it devolves into some kind of action showdown and, it's the casinos and there's casino like it's there's that movie out there. It, it, it It's there somewhere. That's kind of what cigarettes and coffee feels like actually is cigarettes and coffee feels. Have you guys seen it? It's I mean, it, it's no. kind of hard to see. There's a pretty bad VHS rip floating around the Internet. That's that's why I have that I've, I've started it and I'm like. Just, it's it's rough it's, it's rough, rough to watch yeah um and there's not a good version there's not a good version that i've been able to find I, but it i, I think it, pta is purposely buried that um well and it feels like a it it feels like an experiment or an exercise and for because it is but it i mean it even goes as far as having like the low looking up out of a uh trunk shot oh but I, I'm impressed with the fact that he doesn't really bring that that over here, Peterson. I think to your to your point about sort of 
comparing his influences to Tarantino's in the way that he presents them. I, I think that is interesting, especially with you also bringing Wes into the conversation earlier by saying, you know, these three, we got these three guys, because I think all three of them, they use references quite a bit. I mean, some more than others, but all three of them own them whenever they it's not just homage for it's not a jj abrams thing where it's like oh you remember this thing well look how how i recreated or look at how cool it is in reference or here's a joke that literally the punchline is you've seen a thing they sort of find a way to deconstruct it or to fit it into uh what they're doing and sometimes even totally repurpose what the narrative is or what the information is to fit their own story. And I, and so I think that is something that perhaps we'll get into a little more as we go on with this. I mean, it's, it's definitely something that West does quite a bit where he's blatantly ripping off, you know, framing or even dialogue or, or whatnot from, from other directors that or films that he loves, but uh, framing them in a way that's entirely his. And I think there is, I mean, like, like with, um, this could feel like it could feel like a Tarantino ripoff. It could also feel like a Melville ripoff and it doesn't because he, I, I think Melville is to, to talk about who is a director that I love. He's a pretty cold calculated guy who presents, you know, an underbelly with not a lot of redemption. I think this has more uh more going on than than most of Melville's films in in terms of a a brighter side of an optimistic a slightly optimistic side of things. Um but then I also felt like and I couldn't find I looked and I couldn't find any direct reference to it. Have either of you seen the Louis Maul film uh Oh, Atlantic City with No. Burt yeah, Lancaster. Yeah. I, I did in college um but yeah, it, it, I remember almost nothing about it. It's interesting to see Burt Lancaster in a, you know, a later role. I think it's like 1980. Um, Didn't it get nominated so for like 10 Academy Awards or something like that? It may have. I could see it have being a prestige sort of picture. at Picture, the, director, writing, lead actress, and lead actor. Burt Lancaster and Susan Strand. Wow. Watching it this time around reminded me. Uh, quite a bit of Atlantic City, actually, in uh, like sort of the Susan Sarandon, Burt Lancaster dynamic there felt a, feels a little bit like uh, the what we have between Clementine and Sydney going See, on here. I thought this would have been a great Bogart film. That's that's what I thought. This Bogart could have, as this, Sydney or Bogart as Bogart John? as in Humphrey Bogart. Like I felt like no, this no, no, could no. Have been, as as which character? Where does he where do you? Oh, him? as Sydney. Definitely okay. as Sydney. Yeah, just that whole old hardened criminal taking somebody under his wing, and then like I, I would have loved it as that. That could be that completely dark noir, and I don't think this was fully like I, I wouldn't call it a noir or anything like that. I guess it's maybe playing near the same space. I think it, I think it falls into noir by the, if not by the second act, definitely by the third. It's neo noir. I mean, it's kind of neo thriller ish. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's it, it still stays in that drama lane. I don't think it ever really steers. It's it's a character drama and a character ensemble film that uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's kind of a, I don't know. I guess it's kind of a thriller. I mean, I I think it's playing it, and and this is where like like the the Melville feeling comes in is it's playing it a little um, 
lower than you would expect a full-on genre to to go you know like i think of that that scene with jimmy and when he comes home with sydney and he comes home with the girl and sydney's just sitting there another director i think would have really played that up to be some fantastic uh over the top action moment Mm -hmm. and really it's all about sydney once I mean, he's not doing this because he wants to do it. He's doing it because he feels like he has to do it. And so by putting the audience in Sydney's shoes to kind of feel what he's feeling by slowing it down and really downplaying it, um, that's a really it, it's a really nice juxtaposition to what you would expect from that scene in another film. Yeah, ab- absolutely. It could have went a, it could have went a completely different way. And I, I love that we're just sitting there in the chair with him, cutting between the other things that are going on while he's just patiently waiting there to get his revenge. I I, I loved I loved that. Well, I I don't know if revenge is quite the right word because I think it is more he's protecting his relationship with. John one because I wonder if John found out I I bet he would come and kill him one and two I think he wants to protect John and make sure he knows like he actually does care for him like yeah. even though the pretense of the relationship may have started false he really does care for him and that's I think that moment where he's watching the wedding video that cues you in that it's not just about um no longer is it about just uh, kind of making penance and paying penance for the sins mm-hmm. he committed in Atlantic City. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I think this may be a good time, you know, talk about some of the performances. We talked about Phil Baker Hall a little bit. Um, we haven't really touched on John C. Riley or Gwyneth Paltrow or uh, Samuel Jackson. Obviously, Philip Seymour Hoffman pops up. I mean, these are all like talk about a who's who. Who's who's about to pop like three years later? Yeah, no, John C. Riley, I think, turned in a great performance. He's, I feel like he's underrated now that people think of him as like, oh, that guy in the Will Ferrell movies. Like, I think that's what he's more known for: Step Brothers and things like that. Uh, makes you forget that he started out as a as a really good, almost character actor in well, a way. He's also better than Will Ferrell in most of his movies. He he's also a uh, he's a clown. He went to clown college. Did he? He did, uh, but no, I I think he's I think he's really good in this. He's a, I I can't imagine another actor playing this role and pulling it off the way that he does because there's there's something about the sincerity of John that is all over John C. Riley's face, and that's partially just John C. Riley's normal face, I think, and voice. Um, I think I think that's a big part of it, but there's there is that I think we've been describing it as a puppy dog aspect to him that just works so freaking well, and uh, Riley understands how and where to um, also use that and utilize it to sort of both get you know empathy out of Sydney, but then also sort of upset Sydney and like like when we're first introduced to Jimmy and John totally doesn't see all of the flags going up saying like oh maybe Jimmy's not a dude you should be hanging out with kind of like I mean it's sort of the same thing as John ordering a cocktail 
at the the slots that first night um and and that thing he he also knows how to just kind of upset sydney and while also remaining totally oblivious to what he's doing to him and that's where he really does become that surrogate son because you know kids can really easily disappoint their parents without them even understanding what they're doing tell me about it (laughs) um and that's i think what's really impressive about what John C. Riley understands is that he wants the love, wants the connection, wants to be there and be in that moment with Sydney. But he also knows he wants to have a life outside of him too. He wants to grow from that family unit. And that's why he jumps so quickly at Marion Clementine. And, you know, I think a lot of movies you wouldn't necessarily buy They've known each other for what, like a month or two. They get married. I think in this PTA makes you understand, like these are all people looking and searching and trying to build these surrogate families for themselves. And for Clementine, she does it in whatever possible way she can. And for John C. Riley, he's realizing that if Clementine becomes a full-time part of this family of the three of them, that Sydney really loves her and cares about her too. And I think that's part of the drive for him. Is that he cares about her, but he also cares about the fact that Sydney really does care for her. I'm a little cooler on Gwyneth Paltrow's performance than I am on on Phil Baker Hall and John C. Riley, uh, and maybe it's because we don't we don't spend as much time with with Clementine. I'm in general, I think a little a little cool on Paltrow across the board. Like I think she's pretty good in Seven. Um, I obviously have a soft spot for her in as Margot Tenenbaum, but um, she's she's serviceable here. She doesn't knock it out of the park for me. To me, she's always had a face where she looks sad. She looks depressed. Something about the way she just carries her face. And I think now that she's gotten a little bit older, it's kind of disappeared a little bit. I think now that she's in her insane like media mogul, like whatever her website is called. Now that she has that, I think she's going to goo, goop, goop. goop. That's it. Um, I don't know. She does not register quite as well as some of the others. Maybe that is because we don't spend as much time with her, but I also think Paltrow is one of those actresses. I think she's good, but she's not, she's not great. This, this isn't her strength. This is definitely not her strength. She's really good. in I think like the Avengers movies, I think she in like, 14 lines of dialogue over 23 films. She does pretty good job of making a character. No, she's, she, I, I actually, you say that I, you really, I really like her as pepper pots. Uh, that's a good point. Um, but she does, she does have, I think that's why she works as Margot Tenenbaum. She just has that natural face. That's sort of a little bit sad and droopy and which works for this character. It's just, I don't know. I, I was thinking about that watching this time around Jimmy works so well for me, and we have less of Jimmy than we have of Clementine. Yeah, but that's also Samuel Jackson, who's one of the finest actors ever. And that's another thing that I was thinking watching this time around was like, man, I miss Samuel L. Jackson not just playing Samuel L. Jackson. I really, really miss that, where he could just disappear into a role, and, uh, and he definitely has his sort of flavors, but still, Jimmy is like he just nails the character, and I will say also the sound designer nails the character with that 
uh, that meeting in the car where I don't know if you guys noticed, but there's just like all of this leather moving around. Yeah. Oh yeah. Of of Jimmy's Jimmy's suit and the car seats and everything. That's so like it's so perfectly tailored to give you a visceral feeling of that character. And I love he goes, he goes, don't smoke. And then the second Sydney says, no, I'm not putting out. He goes, well, I guess I'll have smoke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I loved his line. Uh, I'm not going to be mad at you for throwing away my gun. Like he, like he has a whole little internal thing going on outside of that conversation. Just being sad about his gun going. I love that gun. Yeah. Man. Well, and, and what I love about that uh, very, you know, cause this movie is essentially like 12 scenes. It's it's all these very long, protracted scenes. And I you do, could almost make it a play. Oh, you yeah. You could do it I on stage. You absolutely could. And there's that moment where Jimmy has his big monologue. Uh, and then Sydney goes, you know, good that you have such a sturdy sense of responsibility. And he knows exactly what to say to get Jimmy riled up. He knows exactly the buttons to push. He knows exactly how to get to this guy. Because he's, I do think he's smarter than everyone, but he's also, he's understands people more. You walk around like you're Mr. Cool, Mr. Wisdom, but you're not. You're just some old hood. The other night in the bar, asking me a question like, 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 do I do parking lot security? Well, the answer is no. I'm trusted security inside the casino. I'm trusted with security, and I don't fuck it up. Good that you have such a sturdy sense of responsibility. Don't! 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 Don't fucking do that, you understand? I can see right through that shit. You look at me as some, some idiot, huh? I know you do. I know you. You old guys, man, you old hoods, you think you're so fucking above it, so high and mighty. And what am I to you? Some loser? No. No! Not with a gun in my hand. Not with the facts I know. Bottom line, Sydney. no matter how hard you try, you're not his father. Okay, guys. So I think it's time that we bust out uh, the inaugural Anderson Anthology vote. Uh, so much like the Carpenter canon, we're going to place these films in uh, on the shelf that they belong. So for you guys, is Heart 8 an Anderson A-list film, a deep dive, or purely for Paul's Papa? So for me, I think this is a Anderson deep dive. This is a movie I think is very strong. It shows the promise he is about to explode onto the scene with. But I don't think it's for everyone. If you never saw this, I think you'd be okay. But I do think if you're somebody who loves the work of Paul Thomas Anderson, you have to see this movie. So deep dive for me. Um but I do highly recommend it. I think I'm going to go the same way with you, Peterson. I The only thing that makes me kind of want to put it in Anderson A-list is I feel like people really should see Philip Baker Hall's incredible performance in this. But ultimately, in the scope of 
Paul Thomas Anderson's career. This is one that you could easily skip and I feel like totally get who he is, what he's capable of. It's it's a great starting effort, but um, not entirely essential either. Yeah, I, th- I think what I have to go with is deep dive as well. Now, what I will say is that scene where Philip Seymour Hoffman plays craps, that's an Anderson A-list. <laughs> that's that's a must see. Like go look that up on if nothing else, look that up on YouTube. Past that, I'm I'm this in no way is a bad Shaka movie. Shaka do, baby do. <laughs> it's no way a bad movie. It's, it's one you can definitely watch and enjoy and have a have a have a good evening watching. Um but I don't think it's as essential as things that are to come. So I, I do have to follow this away as a deep dive. But really good first offering. Uh, I'm I'm excited to take this journey and and hopefully by the end I watch I rewatch Phantom Thread and I'm like oh no I, I love PT Anderson but let's just not get our hopes up there yeah it's also like half an hour shorter than the other PT Anderson movie except for Punch Truck Love so yeah I think Punch Truck Love is shorter actually is it yeah other than that everything else is you know two twenty plus probably okay Chris so when the Anderson aficionados sit down to watch Hard Eight and they uh, they crack open the cold one what well, do you have a suggestion? So when trying to figure out what beer to pair with with this film, uh, I knew that I wanted to start with a coffee porter uh, because coffee plays an essential part in the meeting of John and Sydney. Um, it's sort of where they, they first bond. And so what I landed on was oak-aged maple coffee pecan porter reserve by 903 Brewers in Sherman, Texas. If you didn't tell me that was a beer, that is exactly something I would love. <laughs> Oak-aged, maple, coffee. What else was it? It's just Pecan. everything I like. Oh, man. Make this into a dessert, and I'm in. It's very much a decadent dessert sort of beer. Clocking in a whopping 13.6% ABV and unknown IBU, but uh, there, there's a little bit of, little bit of bitterness there, but not, not too much. Honestly, probably mostly coming from the, the coffee. I feel. Um, but the reason that I ultimately landed on this, this beer is because this beer tastes like the experience of watching a debut feature film from a young, promising director in that it's perhaps a little overly complex for a beer and it's throwing a lot around a lot of flavor on your palate at once, but ultimately it somehow mostly works, which I think is sort of how I feel about, about this film. Like while I can feel that he's a young filmmaker who's trying out things for the first time, he keeps it all on the rails pretty much. And I feel like that's kind of where this beer is like, I generally feel the more adjectives you throw into a beer title, the more gimmicky it can become or the more things can go wrong. And somehow this all this all stays together. Um, so that is cautionary praise, I guess. Uh, this beer starts sweet and then kind of settles into a bit of dry, nutty notes. Uh, and then it when it finally finishes... I would describe it as almost like a licorice, um, which I think is maybe the coming down off that sweetness, that sweetness disappearing and then um, sort of blending with the coffee and the nut. Uh, Very, very interesting and makes a very nice sort of round trip as you you finish off and then go back to that really sweet note at the top. Um, 
makes it a, a fun beer to continue to drink. Uh, but as I said, this is really decadent as well. This is definitely not a beer that you're going to want to have more than one of in any particular sitting uh, because it's there's a lot, there's a whole lot going on. So much like probably uh, watching the experience of watching Heart Eight, you probably want to take a break um, afterwards. But I think it would pair very nicely. That is the Oak Aged Maple Coffee Pecan Porter Reserve by 903 Brewers. Heart Eight is currently streaming on Hoopla, Canopy, and Showtime. Or you can rent it for most impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. What do you think of PTA's freshman effort? Let us know at hello at warshartsatmidnight.com or ring the red telephone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4-CINEMA. Stick around, folks. Our really red recommendations are coming up next. It's really red recommendation time once again. Peterson, what do you have for us today? While I was at the beach last week of the fourth, uh, my wife basically fell asleep every single night uh, a lot earlier than I did. And I decided to watch Steven Spielberg's War Horse. It's a movie I watched, I guess, you know, 2012, whenever it came out. And I kind of sort of enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't love it, but I was like, you know what? Like, it was good. Um, but I put it back on because like a lot of great directors, I wanted to reassess the film and look at it uh, from a more fresh standpoint. And watching it this time, I was like, Jesus Christ, Steven Spielberg is so good. Like he just – he understands cinema in a way that only a few directors really do. Um, and I think there's two or three sequences that just really blew me away. There's a couple sequences during the uh, – actual war um in no man's land there's the obviously there's the one big scene of the two soldiers cutting the horse away uh which i think to me that's the that's the drive for spielberg to make the movie he sees that uh on the stage play and he says oh you know what that i can make that more cinematic i can really do something with that but he's got some of the most elegant shots he's ever had the first uh, shot he has in No Man's Land, he follows the British troops as they're storming and it's this wide shot and it's getting higher and he's just watching these uh, soldiers fall one after the other and it's so elegant and I think he's one of those directors that, you know, some people don't like his later work. 
I really do. I think he's just in a pocket right now where he's so understanding what he wants to do. Uh, I think from Bridge of Spies to Warhorse, um, I think um, even like Ten Ten is pretty good. I think he's just one of those directors who's getting uh, some really great work done. Um, is he as good as he once was? I also watched Jaws on vacation. No, Jaws is <laughs> like one of the you know 10, 15 great films of all time, in my opinion. Um, but I think War Horse is really interesting. It's very good. I think it's got some really strong performances. Obviously, Tom Hiddleston before he breaks. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch shows up. Uh, it's just one of those movies that I thought was okay when I initially saw it. And I saw it again and I was like, man, we really slept on this thing. Like, this is actually a really powerful, powerful film that only someone like Steven Spielberg could make. Because nobody else could get the budget for it. And nobody else could really pull it together. Um and it's a it's one of those weird movies that started life as a children's book and then became a play, uh, and then it made it to screen. Uh, so yeah, one one of those gems. You know how that happens yeah. sometimes. And like one of the it was just the life of this movie getting to the screen is so weird. Um, but it takes somebody like a Spielberg to be able to do it. Um, so that's Warhorse from Steven Spielberg. Uh, obviously a director that nobody you know needs familiarity with. I'm sure everyone knows about him, but. I think that's one of his movies that really gets slept on a lot. So didn't see it. You haven't seen it yet? No. It's on Netflix. Haven't seen it. God, you both haven't seen it. Oh. Nope. Haven't seen it. Jake, what do you have to recommend? Well, seeing as I'm sitting in Baton Rouge and I'm staring down the the barrel of incoming Hurricane Barry, and I recently watched the entire series Barry, I think I'm gonna recommend Barry. I don't know if anybody else has watched this. I know only a couple of people I know have, and everybody's like, this is amazing. You've got to see it. And I was like, I'll watch a couple episodes. So I watched the whole thing in like a week. And uh, it is really, really great. And I'm I'm pretty tempted to say it's the best show on TV right now. Uh, not that I'm watching a whole lot of shows, but I, I'm just where it's at is, is just an A+. The only con, I think there's only like eight episodes per season. So you're going to burn through it quick, fast, and in a hurry. But if you're not familiar, it's it's Bill Hader as a a hitman who um, is is thinking of giving up killing and joining an acting class and becoming an actor. <laughs> it's way less funny than it sounds. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't go in and ex- expect it to be Cheers or something like that. It, it's not. It's it's a little dark and it's funny, but there's some amazing acting, amazing amazing character work just across the entire show, a great performance from Henry Winkler mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Stephen Root and Bill Hader and, and ever everybody. It's just, uh, I, I, I want you to watch it and I want people to talk to me about it because I want to talk about it. And there's only like one person I know who is actually caught up right now. I've only seen the first season and it's incredible. The pathos of this show totally caught me off guard. Yeah. I've only seen, uh, the Barack Obama by a big berry. I haven't seen this. <laughs> uh, well, the other thing I just I just want to say is Anthony Kerrigan as NoHo Hank is the greatest character on TV right yes. now. In a, yes, it, I I I will watch. I, I can't wait for his spinoff. It's gonna be. <laughs> he is. It's compelling and he does an amazing job. And you, you it, it's worth watching just for NoHo Hank. 
<laughs> that's that's all I'm going to say. You can watch it on uh, your HBO subscription that you forgot to cancel when Game of Thrones ended. Just turn it right back on, catch up on Barry, then cancel it and, and renew in a year when something good comes on. That's at least what I do. I don't know. Do whatever you do with your HBO subscriptions. Chris, what, what, what do you have to recommend? Well, first off, I will co-sign Barry, even though I haven't. Uh, yes. I haven't caught up with all of season two yet, uh, mostly because I've been spending all my time watching uh, Chasing the Moon. Have you guys heard of this? I have. I have not. This is a... So it's... I'm watching it as, I guess, a three-part mini-series, docu-series on PBS, part of American Experience, um, that all aired, all three episodes aired recently. Ultimately, it's a, like, I don't know, close to six-hour documentary uh, written, directed, produced by Robert Stone. Um, and it's pretty remarkable. It's so, I'm, I am two thirds of the way through it at this point. I, I haven't seen the third part yet, uh, but goes through basically the, not even just the six, I was going to say the sixties, but really the, the NASA space program from inception up through, I assume, uh, Apollo 11 is where we're going. And maybe, maybe it goes beyond that in, in part three, but I assume that's probably the, uh, the ultimate goal. You had um, me at NASA space program through inception. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure you would love this. I can't believe that you hadn't heard of it. Um, actually Jake it's so the first step, the first part, uh, is very sort of focused on, you know, it's focused on how the space program got bootstrapped and, and got up and running, but really sort of a broad look at political implications in a lot of ways. So there's a lot of, you know, comparing to, uh, what's going on with the Russians and the cold war and how all that, uh, is going. And also sort of the, uh, you know, the expense of getting a space program up and running. The second part is more focused on getting Apollo off the ground. And the, so there's a lot more on sort of the engineering tasks that they had to overcome and the, uh, what the, uh, astronauts had to learn, that sort of thing. Um, still sort of big picture though. Uh, one of the things that I find really interesting about this approach, um, to the, the filmmaking is there's a bunch of interviews with all sorts of astronauts, astronaut wives, um, historians, people who were at NASA at the time, uh, not a single talking head in the entire thing though. They just cover, um, you know, they'll give you a little bug saying who's talking, what their, uh, connection was, and then it's all over archive footage. So you're, always entirely completely immersed in the moment of whatever it is that they're talking about you're never taken out of the moment by like oh there's buzz aldrin but he doesn't look like buzz aldrin who you know walked on the moon he looks like old stately buzz aldrin uh you're just seeing you know footage of the moment that they're 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 talking about and i i think it works really well in the context of kind of putting the viewer in the space of where the country was at a specific time, where the space program was at a specific time, how many hurdles there were to overcome in so many ways. 
Um, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Like I said, I have, I have yet to, to finish it, but, uh, at this point I am totally smitten with everything I've seen. Uh, and it's, it's really quite good. Like it, it kind of falls in there with the, um, the OJ documentary from a few years Uh ago, or, um, there was another one that, oh, the, the Grateful Dead doc from, from a few years back as well. Like in that longer form, but uh, kind of continues to move along and all these little stories unfold throughout. Um, really interesting stuff. Highly recommend. You can catch it streaming on like the PBS app right now through um, American Experience. And there's there's three episodes. Uh, they're all out now. Um, or I don't know if it's going to be available anywhere as like the full six hour or whatever, uh, whatever thing. But Highly recommend it. DVR it, stream it, whatever. Do whatever you have to do. It's great. Does this start with Mercury and Gemini and kind of goes through all that? I mean, it starts It starts before Mercury. It starts like at inception and then goes through Mercury, goes through Gemini into Apollo. So, so you're just trying to one-up my right stuff recommendation. I got it. I hear you. It sounds interesting, but unless they talk about Space Force, I don't, I don't really care. Oh, so, um, <laughs> um but the weirdest part, having seen First Man now, is it's Jiminy, not Gemini. Well, it's everyone pronounced it Jiminy at the time. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's... The word is Gemini. The word is Gemini. Yeah, I think you have a bunch of Texans. <laughs> All them Gemini rockets. No, those Jiminy. Gemini rockets. Yeah, no, and and there is. I did notice. So I went through a whole sort of after we did Armageddon. I then went and watched uh, First Man, which talk about something that everyone slept on. That movie is incredible, Ooh, and I yeah. hate myself for not seeing that in the theater. Um, and then I also rewatched Apollo thirteen. They also call it Jiminy in Apollo thirteen. Um, oh, do and they? Then, yeah. And then this like just happened to come out and uh, so hopped on this and then I'm going to watch that Apollo 11 doc uh, next. And then you're going to go down to the Johnson Space Center? I mean, I, I'm i a hop, skip, and a jump. You need to go. Well, I, I might even drive over if you're going. They're doing a whole bunch of stuff uh, commemorating the, the moon landing, so uh, maybe I will. And that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Join us next time for a brand new episode of The Magnificent Andersons, our ongoing exploration of the works of two American auteurs, Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. Next time, we're looking at Wes's first foray into feature filmmaking, Bottle Rocket. You can find us online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes and more. And if you've got something to say, you can always email the show at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com Or better yet, give us a call and leave a voicemail at 484-424-6362. Or just say hello on Twitter. You can find me at WSAMPod. I'm at JakeRG23. And I'm at PetersonWHill. If you enjoy War Starts at Midnight, please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. And shout out to Generationals for the featured music on this week's show. Find more, including tour dates and their brand new album, Reader as Detective, at generationals.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Shaggy like a new old timer. I know three kinds of karate, jujitsu, aikido, and regular karate. <laughs>